So, it comes down to one thing for you boys, and you never forget. Lesson number one. Don't underestimate the other guy's greed! <laughs> Lesson number two, don't get high on your own supply. That's right. Lesson number two, don't get high on your own supply. Because not everybody follows the rules, huh? Peace be upon you. So that soundbite was from the movie Scarface and the famous line of don't get high on your own supply. And the meaning behind that was that Tony, he was in, addicted to his own cocaine and that led to his downfall. But this expression has grown figuratively as well, such that if one thinks that their method, their way is so superior that they become overtly arrogant and believe that they're infallible and incapable of making mistakes, it's as if they're getting high off their own supply. Now, the Quran cautions its readers that a significant reason for the downfall of many of the Jews and Christians in the past was their overconfidence in their own self-righteousness. They believed to themselves that they were incapable of straying from the right path and considered themselves the sole recipients of God's love and grace. This arrogant mindset is put in the Quran as a warning for us not to fall into complacency, not to make the same mistakes that the generations in the past have made. And this is encompassed in a number of verses. The first one is Surah 2, verse 135 through 140. It reads, They said, You have to be Jewish or Christian to be guided. Say, We followed the religion of Abraham, monotheism. He never was an idol worshiper. So here's their statement, thinking that you have to be Jewish or Christian in order to have God's guidance. And it continues in 2.136, say, We believe in God and what was sent down to us and what was sent down to Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the patriarchs. And in what was given to Moses and Jesus and all the prophets from their Lord. We make no distinction among any of them. To him alone we are submitters. If they believe as you do, then they are guided. But if they turn away, then they are in opposition. God will spare you their opposition. He is the hearer, the omniscient. Such is God's system. And whose system is better than God's? Him alone we worship. Say, do you argue with us about God when he is our Lord and your Lord? We are responsible for our deeds, and you are responsible for your deeds. To him alone we are devoted. And in 2.140 it reads, Do you say that Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, Jacob, and the patriarchs were Jewish or Christian? Say, do you know better than God? Who is more evil than one who conceals a testimony he has learned from God. God is never unaware of anything you do. So this is clearly a false claim to think that you have to be Jewish or Christian to be guided. You know, God's mercy is not limited to any one group. And God rebukes this claim and shows that divine guidance is not exclusive to any single group. The Quran emphasizes that the true righteousness does not stem from identifying yourself as Jewish or Christian, you know, these labels that humans have applied to their beliefs. Instead, it asserts that what truly defines one's righteousness is their actions and dedications to God alone. Like it's comical to think that the followers of Jesus, that they called themselves Christians, this is a label that was given to them after the fact. Similarly, you know, Moses never called himself a Jew. This is something that was created post facto. But now they use these titles as if this is what defines the exclusivity of God's grace. In Surah 3 verse 65 says, O followers of the scripture, why do you argue about Abraham? 
when the Torah and the gospel were not revealed until after him, do you not understand? So these people who claim ownership to Abraham, it's saying that the Torah and the gospel came after him, that he didn't have these books. So therefore, he was not Jewish, he was not Christian. The Quran challenges the notion of Jews and Christians to having superiority in righteousness by highlighting that they are subject to divine punishment for their sins, just like any other group of people. This perspective, it underscores the idea that no community is inherently more virtuous or immune to consequences for wrongdoing, emphasizing the equality of all people under God's judgment. It reads in Surah 5 verse 18, it says, The Jews and the Christians said, We are God's children and His beloved. Say, why then does He punish you for your sins? You are just humans like other humans He created. He forgives whomever He wills and punishes whomever He wills. To God belongs the sovereignty of the heavens and the earth and everything between them, and to Him is the final destiny. By God calling them out and saying, look, when you go astray, you get punished, is proof that they have no exclusivity to God's grace. They're treated like all other people with one caveat. What that caveat is, is that the more favor any one person or group has from God, all that gives them is more responsibility. It doesn't make them more righteous. When the followers of Jesus asked for a proof, they said, can you bring a feast from the sky? God's response is that if he brings it, which he did, that if any one of them disbelieves after that, they would have double the retribution. So all that gave them was, yeah, it gave them more assurances, but it also gave them more responsibility. The Quran suggests that the greater favor from God is accompanied always with increased responsibility. This principle implies that those who are blessed or favored by God are also held to a higher standard of accountability for their actions. They don't have excuses. If you have God's scripture, you have a prophet or a messenger among you, you have less excuses than someone who doesn't have these things. This concept, it reflects that with greater blessings comes greater expectations of fulfilling the responsibilities that God expects from them. The children of Israel were blessed with many miracles and prophets in scripture. And while this was a major blessing, it was also a huge responsibility. In Surah 2 verse 40, it reads, O children of Israel, remember my favor which I bestowed upon you and fulfill your part of the covenant that I fulfill my part of the covenant and reverence me. So here's God making a covenant with the children of Israel, calling out all the favor that he's uh, showered upon them, but also indicating that this comes with a tremendous responsibility. We have the example in 5.1.14, again, regarding Jesus, as it said, Jesus, the son of Mary, our God, our Lord, send down to us a feast from the sky. Let it bring plenty for each and every one of us and a sign for you. Provide for us. You are the best provider. God said, I am sending it down. Anyone among you who disbelieves after this, I will punish him as I never punished anyone else. So it's comical to think that because they were blessed with prophets, with messengers, with uh, scripture, with all these various forms of favor from God, that that automatically makes them impervious from falling into sin, for being punished for their sin. It doesn't. It just makes them more responsible. What's funny is deep down they know that they don't, they have not monopolized God's grace and mercy. They know that they get punished for their sins. And God gives them a simple challenge in order for them to be honest with themselves. In Surah 2, verse 6 and 7, it says, Say, 
O you who are Jewish, if you claim that you are God's chosen to the exclusion of all other people, then you should long for death if you are truthful. They will never long for it because of what they have committed. God is fully aware of the wicked. So what's clever about this request is that it brings out their true convictions. Because if they genuinely thought that they are guaranteed God's grace and blessings, they would be longing for death to make it back to paradise. But instead, what do they do? They opt for this world. You know, they want to live a thousand years. Uh, they want to have all the, the, the luxuries of this world. They don't want to meet their creator because they know that they're going to be held accountable for all their actions and deeds, just like every other human being. So why do they do this? Why do they propagate these lies? It's because deep down, their ego is crushed. When they think that God is bestowing his grace and mercy upon whomever he wills, that he sent his final scripture to these Arabs who they despise, they look down upon, to them that's a huge blow to their ego. It's out of jealousy and resentment that they reject this message, that they reject the fact that, yes, God has no shortage of mercy. God has no shortage of guidance. That if he will, he can guide all the people. But he creates these scenarios for people to bring out their true convictions. In Surah 3, verse 72 through 73, it reads, Some followers of the scripture say, Believe in what was sent down to the believers in the morning and reject it in the evening. Maybe someday they will revert. And do not believe except as those who follow your religion. Say, the true guidance is God's guidance. If they claim that they have the same guidance or argue with you about your Lord, say, all grace is in God's hand. He bestows it upon whomever he wills. God is bounteous, omniscient. So this verse is showing us that God has infinite amounts of grace and he brings it, he provides it to whomever he wills. Now this expression from the, uh, the, the people of the scripture, it says, believe in what was sent down to the believers in the morning and reject it in the evening. Maybe someday they will revert and do not believe except as those who follow your religion. This is their proclamation. Now, what does that mean? Believe in what was sent down to the believers in the morning and rejected in the evening. My interpretation from this is that this is figurative speech, that they're saying, look, believe in what we got, but any revelation that came afterwards rejected. And this is always the case. You know, why is it that when the messengers come, they're always rejected by their people, but the ones who came before them, the people readily accept, right? When Moses came and he delivers the message, the people at that time, according to Surah 40, verse 34, they believed in Joseph. They said that he was the last messenger. And then sure enough, you read the Bible. You know, each messenger who comes, his people reject him. And then you get to Jesus, and then the Jews reject Jesus. And then you get to Muhammad, and the Christians and the Jews reject Muhammad. That they always want to say, okay, accept everything up until this point, but after this point, reject it. And we see this in the uh, uh, following verse, in Surah 2, verse 88 through 91. It says, some would say, our minds are made up. And this expression, our minds are made up, the literal Arabic is that our hearts are uncircumcised. And this is a biblical expression. You'll see it throughout the, uh, the, the, the Bible of people who claim to believe in something, that their actions look like they do, but their hearts actually say otherwise. And additionally, it's also someone, again, who's impervious to changing their viewpoint. And it continues, says, instead, it is a curse from God as a consequence of their disbelief that keeps them from believing except for a few of them. When the scripture comes to them from God, and even though it agrees with and confirms what they have, and even though they used to prophesy its advent when they talked with the disbelievers, when their own prophecy came to pass, they disbelieved therein. God's condemnation thus afflicts the disbelievers. So they're talking about this prophecy. It comes, and then what do they do? They reject it. 
And it continues in 290, it says, Miserable indeed is what they sold their souls for, rejecting these revelations of God out of sheer resentment that God should bestow His grace upon whomever He chooses from among His servants. Consequently, they incurred wrath upon wrath. The disbelievers have incurred a humiliating retribution. When they are told, you shall believe in these revelations of God, they say, we believe only in what was sent down to us. Thus, they disbelieve in subsequent revelations, even if it is the truth from their Lord, and even though it confirms what they have, say, why then did you kill God's prophets if you are believers? So this is showing a consistent theme that the people of the previous scriptures that they done, one is they think that they monopolize God's grace and guidance. They think that they're God's beloved and chosen people. And now you see that they reject any other God's revelations that came after them. That each of them say, okay, up until this point, accept it. Anything beyond that, reject it. And God's messenger in the Quran is warned about this. He says, O you messenger, this is Surah 5 verse 41, do not be saddened by those who hasten to disbelieve among those who say we believe with their mouths while their hearts do not believe. Now that sounds a lot like those whose hearts are uncircumcised. It says, and it continues, it says, they listened to people who never met you and who distorted the words out of context. Then said, if you are given this, accept it. But if you're given anything different, beware. Whomever God wills to divert, you can do nothing to help him against God. God does not wish to cleanse their hearts. They have incurred humiliation in this world, and in the hereafter, they will suffer a terrible retribution. And the Quran tells us that the reason they believe this, the reason they're doing this, is out of sheer jealousy. In Surah 2 verse 109 says, Many followers of the scripture would rather see you revert to disbelief now that you have believed. This is due to jealousy on their part after the truth has become evident to them. You shall pardon them and leave them alone until God issues his judgment. He is omnipotent. And again, we see this in 2.2.13. 2, it says the people used to be one community when God sent down the prophets as bearers of good news as well as warners. He sent down with them the scripture bearing the truth to judge among the people in their disputes. Ironically, those who received the scripture were the ones who rejected any new scripture despite the clear proofs given to them. This is due to jealousy on their part. God guides those who believe to the truth that is disputed by all others in accordance with his will. God guides whoever wills in a straight path. Now the irony is, why would anyone be jealous? Jealousy signifies that you think that because someone else has something, that it means that there's less of it for you. And this shows that they, they fail to understand that whatever God possesses, he has infinite amounts thereof. And we see in Surah 5, verse 64, it says, The Jews even said, God's hand is tied down. It is their hands that are tied down. They are condemned for uttering such a blasphemy. Instead, his hands are wide open, spending as he wills. So this concept of thinking God's hands are tied down is as if thinking God's provisions are limited. God has infinite provisions. He can give as much guidance as he wants, and there's going to be no shortage. Just because he's blessed some people with, you know, these, these favor doesn't mean that he's being stingy. He's not limiting it. He's giving it as he wills to whomever he wills. And again, there's infinite supply of this. And the verse continues. It says, for certain, your Lord's revelations to you will cause many of them to plunge deeper into transgression and disbelief. Consequently, we have committed them to animosity and hatred among themselves until the day of resurrection. Whenever they ignite the flames of war, 
God puts them out. They roam the earth wickedly, and God dislikes the evildoers. So because of this, because they think God has limited amounts of provisions, that because he shares it with some people, that that's going to cause animosity and hatred among them. Because the second they see some other group being favored by God, rather than rejoicing and you know praying to God to be similarly having those blessings, what it does is it causes strife and contention among them. So that was the issue with the communities of the past, that God is setting them up as an example. Now, the mistake a lot of people make is they think that this is put in there so we can feel superior about ourselves. Oh, we're so much better than them, you know, because they went astray. They did all these silly things. And the second someone goes down that path, they've missed the whole point. God is not putting this inside the Quran for us to feel better about ourselves. It's put inside the Quran as a warning not to make the same mistakes, not to get high off our own supply, to think that we're so good, we're so amazing, God has given us the scripture, it's been preserved, it's fully detailed, therefore we have nothing to worry about, we're guaranteed paradise. This is the fundamentally wrong interpretation to have. You know, we should be incredibly cautious not to be making these same mistakes. Now, what's funny is, regrettably, Sunnis, along with many of these Islamic sects, have fallen into the same error as the Jews and the Christians of the past. It's almost as if they haven't read the Quran and taken heed of these warnings. So many of these same arguments that the Jews and the Christians make about the superiority of their guidance, their faith, the Sunnis are making about themselves today. You know, one of the verses that they use to justify that they're in the right is Surah 4, verse 115. It reads, As for him who opposes the messenger, after a guidance has been pointed out to him, and follows other than the believer's way, we will direct him in the direction he has chosen and commit him to hell. What a miserable destiny. Now, the audacity of certain people is they say, Well, look, we are the believers, so anyone who follows other than the believer's way is going astray. So they created a circular argument. They self-proclaimed themselves as the believers. So any way they follow is the believer's way. So if anyone follows any way other than the way of the Sunnis, therefore they're going astray. And the idiocracy of this form of argument is that merely designating oneself as a believer doesn't inherently validate the claim. Think of it this way. There is a terrorist group called Hezbollah. Hezbollah literally means the party of God. Just because they self-proclaim themselves Hezbollah, the party of God, does that make them the party of God? No. According to God, that actually makes them the worst creatures because they're attributing lies to God and they're trying to put God's seal upon their actions. And the Sunnis are doing the same thing. You know, they've self-proclaimed themselves that, yes, they are the believer's way. That if anyone goes counter to them, therefore they're going astray. They're following some other uh, God other than God. Now, furthermore, self-identifying as believer, doesn't automatically protect a group from deviating from the right path, nor grant them authority to unilaterally declare their interpretations as definitive understandings of the religion. And this is no different than what the Jews and the Christians did in the Quran, right? They said, uh, you have to be Jewish or Christian in order to be guided. The only difference is now they say, look, we are the believers. Anyone who follows other than our way is a disbeliever. So rather than using the moniker of Jewish or Christian, they're just using a different term. But the principle is still one and the same. So now that they self-proclaim themselves as believers and then designated anyone who believes other than them disbelievers, uh, they take it one step further uh, to reinforce that they can't be wrong. 
And the way they went about this is creating this concept known as ijma or a consensus. And they say they, they have this doctrine that the consensus, the majority of the Muslims cannot be wrong. So because of this, they think that in essence, they're impervious from going astray. In the Hadith from Ibn Majah, uh, 3950, it reads, I heard the Messenger of Allah say, My nation will not unite on misguidance, so if you see them deferring, follow the great majority. So this is advocating to just follow the majority. In another narration, this is in uh, Termidi uh, 2166, it reads, uh, uh, Ibn Abbas narrated, the Messenger of Allah said, Allah's hand is with the Jama, right, the majority. So they have this doctrine that they think that it's impossible for the majority of the Ummah to go astray. And the problem with that is that it goes completely counter to the Quran. The Quran consistently tells us that the majority of people are astray, that the majority of people can't believe. And out of those who believe, the majority cannot do so without committing idol worship. In Surah 6 verse 116 it reads, If you obey the majority of people on earth, they will divert you from the path of God. They follow only conjecture. They only guess. In Surah 12 verse 106 says, The majority of those who believe in God do not do so without committing idol worship. So this is from the group who already claim to believe in God, that out of that, God says the majority of them still commit idol worship. And in Surah 19, verse 73, it says, When our revelations are recited to them clearly, those who disbelieve say to those who believe, Which of us is more prosperous? Which of us is in the majority? So we're seeing how they're spinning themselves in this fabric of lies and just confusing the religion for them, but giving them this certainty that they think that they're absolutely right, that it's impossible that the Muslim masses are wrong. It's impossible that the ulama is wrong. It's impossible that they're not the believers. And that if anyone who falls other than their way, that they feel so confident to say that these people are disbelievers. And this is the way that Satan dupes them. These people have not learned from history that they're making the exact same mistakes as the Christians and Jews have done in the past. And these examples, again, they're replete in the Quran. Now, there's one third branch of this deception that they pull over themselves. They have this ideology that their scholars cannot do wrong, that they won't be punished, that there's only rewards in their efforts. And this comes from a hadith from Termidi where it says, when the judge passes a judgment in which he strived and was correct, then he receives two rewards. And when he judges and is mistaken, then he receives one reward. So as long as he's judging, irrespective if he's wrong or right, it's saying that he's still rewarded. In this framework, they have granted themselves complete immunity from repercussions of their decisions and actions. They view themselves as the sole true believers, excluding all others, and they believe they are infallible. They are convinced that even in the case of error, they will only receive rewards and never face punishment. And it's almost as if they haven't read the Quran. They haven't read these warnings. You know, they create these, these fabrications. They spin up these lies to basically give them reassurances that they can't be wrong, that they're only rewarded, that they're never punished, that they're the believer's way. And they're getting high off their own supply. In Surah 25 verse 30, it says, The messenger said, My Lord, my people have deserted this Quran. The Quran gives so many warnings, but it just goes, it falls on deaf ears. 
In Surah 6 verse 26 says, they repel others from this Quran as they themselves stay away from it. And thus they only destroy themselves without perceiving. It's because they don't read and understand this Quran that they could possibly believe this nonsense. They're repeating the exact same mistakes that God warned us regarding the Christians and Jews that they've done in the past. They have turned the religion of submission where one submits to the will of God, irrespective of the name of their faith, into a cult under the moniker that they use called Islam. In Surah 2 verse 62 it reads, Surely those who believe, those who are Jewish, the Christians, the converts, anyone who believes in God, two, believes in the hereafter, and three, leads a righteous life, will receive their recompense from their Lord. They have nothing to fear, nor will they grieve. God is telling us repeatedly in the Quran, that His grace, His mercy, His guidance is available for everyone irrespective of the name of their faith. If they fulfill these simple requirements, if they believe in God alone, if they uh, believe in a hereafter and they lead a righteous life, God tells them they have nothing to fear nor will they grieve. You know, it's the devil who convinced them to make them think that they have a monopoly on God's grace, on God's guidance and on God's religion. Similar to how the Jews became overly focused on their identity rather than their actions, the majority of Muslims have fallen into a similar pattern. They have formed themselves into a distinct sect, believing they alone are the rightly guided ones. However, if their belief were accurate, they would not experience punishment. Yet the Muslim world is beset with various crises, including persistent conflicts, immense suffering, and widespread tyranny suggesting a contradiction between their belief in exclusive guidance and the reality of their circumstances. You know, if they had God's guidance, if they could not go wrong, if they were only rewarded, why are the Muslim countries suffering so tremendously? In Surah 8 verse 73, it says, Those who disbelieve are allies of one another. Unless you keep these commandments, there will be chaos on earth and terrible corruption. And what do we see in the Muslim countries? We see chaos and we see corruption. It's because they're not upholding God's commandments. The Quran warns that if a group favored by God fails to observe His commandments, then they are destined to experience animosity and hatred among themselves. This is exactly the situation we observe in the Muslim world today. In Surah 5 verse 14, it reads, Also from those who said, We are Christian. We took their covenant, but they disregarded some of the commandments given to them. Consequently, we condemn them to animosity and hatred among themselves until the day of resurrection. God will inform them of everything they had done. And this shows, this is a, a lesson for us. It says, look, if you don't uphold God's commandments, if a community that received God's final scripture in their own language is not upholding these commandments, the outcome of that is that they're going to have animosity and hatred among themselves. They're not going to understand God's system. And if Sunni scholars are only rewarded for their judgments, then they should long for death. Yet we see that the, the, the Sunni countries, their elite, their leadership are some of the most richest, wealthiest individuals in this world. That they live their entire life for the luxuries of this world. And the Quran tells us in Surah 2 verse 96, is, in fact, you will find them the most covetous of life, even more so than the idol worshippers. The one of them wishes to live a thousand years. But this will not spare him any retribution no matter how long he lives. God is seer of everything they do. God gave them their final warning, but they chose to disregard it. And they had the scripture in their own language. 
but they chose to follow other sources besides God's scripture. And because of this, God warns them that they are going to be replaced. And it's happening right now. In Surah 47, verse 38, it says, You are invited to spend in the cause of God, but some of you turn stingy. The stingy are stingy towards their own souls. God is rich while you are poor. If you turn away, he will substitute other people in your place, and they will not be like you. This is God's warning to the recipients of the Quran. And we're seeing this happen. They've gotten God's scripture, and they've abandoned it. They've turned away from it. They've neglected it. They've set up their hadith, their scholars, their ulama, their ijma, all this nonsense as secondary sources, safeguarding them as if they can't go wrong, as if they're guaranteed to be on the right path. And look how silly this is. They fabricate hadith to establish their position, their superiority. And then they end up applying this hadith, even though it's fabricated, and only securing their place in hell. So it's like you create a lie and eventually it goes all the way around coming right back at you and then you accept it as a truth even though it contradicts the absolute truth of the Quran. And I'm going to end on this note. Uh, it has to do with how we should be viewing ourselves now that we know that these are not, you know, God warning us about what the past communities have done, their error in thinking that they had a monopoly on God's grace that they were uh, incapable of going wrong. In the novel, Catch-22, written by Joseph Heller, the protagonist is an individual by the name of Captain John Yossarian. And he has a scheme because he has to fly these uh, uh, missions and he's concerned that he's going to die. So he comes up with this idea. He goes to the doc and he says, Hey, doc, I'm insane. And the doc says, You can't be insane. And Yossarian says, How do you know that? In the doc, he responds that if a pilot requests to stop flying missions due to insanity, this demonstrates a rational concern for his safety, thus proving that he's, he's sane and not insane. And this traps Yossarian. His desire to preserve his life by avoiding dangerous missions is seen as sane, making him ineligible to be grounded. This humorous take holds a kernel of truth. A genuinely insane person wouldn't be aware of their insanity. So claiming insanity suggests a level of self-awareness that an insane person wouldn't possess. This is analogous to the claims of piety. If someone claims that they're pious, this very act shows that they lack humility and therefore are not pious. And we have this example actually in the Quran. In Surah 4, verse 49, it says, Have you noted those who exalt themselves by claiming purity? Instead, God is the one who exalts whomever he wills without the least injustice. So by claiming purity, you're actually showing that you're impure. And the Quran continues that the only person who would do such a thing is someone who has arrogance in their heart and they're totally oblivious to it. In Surah 40, verse 56, that surely those who argue against God's revelations without proof are exposing the arrogance that is hidden inside their chests, and they're not even aware of it. Therefore, seek refuge in God. He is the hearer, the seer. And this is our answer to how we should behave in these situations. We should be happy and thrilled that God gave us a scripture, that he clarified these matters for us, that he's guided us. But we should never get high off our own supply to think that we deserve all this, that we're basically guaranteed paradise. And we have a perfect example. What's ironic is the same example that the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims all claim, that of Abraham, 
right? Why do they claim Abraham? It's because Abraham is the representation of strict monotheism. And from Abraham's example, we see that the most appropriate action we can take is to sincerely ask God's assistance in cleansing our hearts, in leading us on the right path. We maintain the hope that should he choose, God will absolve us of our sins and allow us into his paradise. This humble attitude aligns exactly with what Abraham did. Despite being called a beloved friend by God, he still possessed the humility to hope and pray that God forgives him and admits him into paradise rather than being so overconfident in his own righteousness. In Surah 4 verse 125, it reads, Who is better guided in his religion than one who submits totally to God, leads a righteous life according to the creed of Abraham, monotheism. God has chosen Abraham as a beloved friend. Now imagine God has identified this individual, this one individual as a beloved friend. Yet, does he think that he's guaranteed paradise? Does he think that he's incapable of going astray? We read his response in Surah 26, verse 69 through 87. It says, narrate to them Abraham's history. He said to his father and his people, what is this you're worshiping? They said, we worship statues. We are totally devoted to them. He said, can they hear you when you implore? Can they benefit you or harm you? They said, no, but we found our parents doing this. He said, do you see these idols that you worship? You and your ancestors? I'm against them, for I'm devoted only to the Lord of the universe, the one who created me and guided me, the one who feeds me and waters me. And when I get sick, he heals me. The one who puts me to death then brings me back to life. The one who hopefully will forgive my sins on the day of judgment. My Lord, grant me wisdom and include me with the righteous. Let the example I set for future generations be a good one. Make me one of the inheritors of the blissful paradise. And forgive my father, for he has gone astray. And do not forsake me on the day of resurrection. This is the supplication of someone who understands God's system. This is the supplication of a submitter and someone who has humility, enough humility to know that despite being called a beloved friend of God, that he's still devoted 100% to God alone, that he's imploring God to forgive his sins, to admit him back into his paradise, and to protect him from falling into sin. Now, who in the right mind is going to say that they're more noble, more strict in monotheism than Abraham to believe that they've monopolized God's grace, that their system keeps them impervious and incapable from falling in sin. Only someone who's harboring tremendous amounts of arrogance in their hearts would have such thoughts about themselves, such self-righteousness to think that they can't go astray and that they're guaranteed God's grace and mercy at the expense of everyone else. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in contact, please join us on our Discord server. We have uh, lively discussions, Quran studies, meditation, recitation uh, on a regular basis, and we'd love to have like-minded people there. If you want to read the verses of the Quran, download the Quran study app on the iOS app store. If you don't have an iOS device, you can go to quranstudyapp.com website. If you want notes from today's discussion, you can go to Quran Talk blog. And until next time, peace and God bless.